Hi folks, thanks for joining me. In this episode, there is no particular theme. I just sent out a text to a few of my associates asking if they had some thoughts that included something they thought worth everyone knowing. Four of them got back with me from wherever they were at the time. I thought that I would also toss in a thought of my own on the topic. I think it turned out to be pretty interesting. I hope you agree. I'll just play the responses and let them speak for themselves. You can decide whether they have anything to say worth considering. You've probably heard the advice that tells us that we have to go along to get along. Much of the time, if it's not altogether true, it's at least convenient. Christopher Morley puts it like this, lots of times you have to pretend to join a parade in which you're not really interested in order to get where you're going. We have our individual goals and agenda, but much of the time, prioritizing our personal interests requires too much effort or may actually be counterproductive. Michael Corda is on point when he advises, the fastest way to succeed is to look as if you're playing by other people's rules, while quietly playing by your own. The truth here notwithstanding, there is a very real danger. On the one hand, we run the risk of becoming so accustomed to fitting in that we passively subordinate our goals and agenda to the will and wishes of others, or on the other hand, we are so intent on guarding our individuality that we become inappropriately rigid and inflexible. Finding the middle ground is difficult and staying on that middle ground is even more challenging. Bilby tells us what is needed, I try not to break the rules, but merely to test their elasticity, nonetheless, for most of us, the trip from knowing to doing is frequently less than smooth. At this point, I think most of us either give up and go along or dig in inside with Bill Watterson's choice, from now on, I'll connect the dots my own way, as tempting as either alternative may be, experience tells me that the middle ground is still the place to be. How do you think this works as a helpful way of understanding the middle ground between giving in and digging in? I am not in this world to live up to other people's expectations, nor do I feel that the world must live up to mine. Fritz Perl's perspective on the middle ground is one that I personally find helpful. I'm comfortable going along so long as I experience other people's expectations as compatible with or at least not incompatible with mine. However, if I experience those expectations as incompatible, passively going along is no longer an option for me. Saying this is easy but deciding to dig in and then doing it is not always easy and can be downright risky at times. Dr. Sun Wolf knows the truth of it, sooner or later, you will need the courage to be disliked, or perhaps the courage to accept even more harsh consequences. There is a cost to giving in and going along, but perhaps an even higher cost to digging in. The dilemma is in understanding the cost and benefits of both choices and then living with your choice. What would you never say to your five-year-old? It's hard to say exactly what goes on your list but I suspect that things on your never say list all have a negative or critical tone or message tucked in there. I doubt that any of us would tell our five-year-old that he or she is stupid, ugly, lazy, in the way, too much bother, or anything else implying that the child is not valued or not okay. At least I hope none of us would relate to or respond to a child in ways like that. Even so, there is definitely another side to that coin. Our five-year-old certainly needs feedback, and sometimes, that feedback needs to be negative or critical. Children need to learn how to do things and how to behave. They also need to learn how not to do things and how not to behave. They require guidance, coaching and the opportunity to take advantage of our experience, awareness and judgment. They also have to occasionally deal with a firm and unequivocal no. 
The issue isn't whether they should receive our guidance and feedback, they should. Rather the issue is how and when that guidance and feedback should be forthcoming. You may be thinking that I'm about to offer some advice about how you should or should not go about providing guidance and feedback to children. Not this time. Instead, I want to share with you my father's first principle for offering guidance and feedback to me growing up. As much as I have read about and studied child development and parenting over the years, I have never come across any childhood scholar or parenting expert who even mentioned dad's first principle, let alone recommending it. Nonetheless, I think you may find it worth your consideration. Let's call dad's first principle that he'll figure it out principle. When I did something that dad thought I shouldn't have done, which I occasionally did, or something that did not work out very well or just wasn't working for me, he asked one of two questions. Question one was, do you think that was your best choice? Or question two, how do you think that is working out for you? Here is the key. He actually listened to my answer. Usually, I just acknowledged that it wasn't my best choice or that it hadn't worked out very well. Sometimes I would tell him that it seemed like a good idea at the time. He would only chuckle and comment that maybe the next time, it wouldn't seem like such a good idea. Dad also had what we might think of as the first corollary to his first principle. Most of the time, he didn't say or do anything when my decisions and choices had negative outcomes or didn't work out. He usually just gave me credit for figuring out for myself that I had made a bad decision or poor choice. He might ask if I wanted to talk about it but usually not. Unless the issue came up again, that was the end of it. Although I don't think I saw it at the time, I eventually came to see that dad had a backup strategy or a way of being sure that I did get the guidance and advice that would serve me well over time. Some time removed from the incident that included my bad choice or poor judgment, dad would share an anecdote or in some other way share his thoughts or experience related to the incident or situation that I had already resolved or worked out. He never pointed out the connection but it was there for me to notice or think about, should I choose to do so, and I usually did. The best part was that I always knew that we could talk about the issue or situation if I wanted to talk. Dad's first principle worked out pretty well for me growing up. The key point that I want to share with you is that it has continued to work out for me when working with people as a co-worker, supervisor, manager and administrator. Sure, there were times when I had to take control and insist that people do some things in a specific way and never do other things. There were also times when those expectations had to be enforced, especially if people would not or could not conform to expectations. But for most people most of the time, Dad's two questions were enough. Do you think that was your best choice? How do you think that is working out for you? My only goal here is to encourage you to consider always starting with one of Dad's two questions whenever you think someone has made a bad choice or poor decision. That's enough to be sure they know that you noticed and are there to consult if they want your advice or guidance. Even better may be to do nothing, just assuming that they will figure it out for themselves and not repeat their miscue. An interesting point worth knowing is that the worse the bad choice or bad decision, the more likely most people are to never repeat that choice or decision. They just figure it out for themselves. Now you know so there you go. I have come to an unexpected conclusion. It's only unexpected because I hope that it wasn't true.
No, that's not quite right. It's unexpected because it hadn't occurred to me that it might be true. I just hadn't considered it as a possibility. Here's what happened. I went to the doctor today and the first event before I had even sat down to wait on the doctor was an interview. Standing up. What is your name? Okay, that was pretty easy. I knew my name so gave it quickly. Do you have an appointment? Well, I thought I had an appointment. I seldom go to the doctor's office unless I have an appointment. I figured that giving out my name was enough to permit my appointment status to be confirmed with a quick look at the doctor's schedule. But okay, I would play. I said that I did indeed have an appointment. What is your insurance? I get that. The doctor wants to assure that payment is forthcoming before agreeing to actually see me. Even doctors want paid, along with everyone else it seems. Yes, I have insurance so somewhat less quickly gave up that information. Please have a seat and fill out these papers. The doctor will be with you after you return the completed papers. I guess that appointment I thought I had was only the time to be there to start the paperwork. These papers I soon learned was shorthand for several pages in 20 minutes trying to recall who, including me and others in my immediate family and my parents' families, had any of a very long list of conditions, a few of which I actually recognized as something I probably heard of before. My choices for answers were yes and no. Where was I don't have a clue when I needed it? Do I just make my best guess or put a note in the margin about how I think I might have heard someone say something about Uncle Charles having a condition that sounds something like whatever the condition or the list means? That didn't seem like my best plan, so I just started saying no to whatever was being asked. Two of my three children are alive and doing fine. The rest of the people being asked about have nearly all died. Yes, almost all of them. I'm just glad I wasn't being asked why each one died. Talk about not having a clue. I had two sisters and at least 40 aunts and uncles. The doctor is ready for you now. It was 45 minutes after I thought my appointment to see the doctor was scheduled when I was taken back to the exam room. Let me cut this short. 45 minutes later, including a 10-minute consultation with the doctor, interrupted by a 5-minute break while the doctor talked with someone who was apparently more important than I was, I was headed back to the car. I'll leave the math for you to figure out how long it took to have a 10-minute appointment with the doctor. Where else would we put up with appointments that are not even very good guesses as to when we will receive whatever service we were expecting? Will you like to schedule a follow-up appointment? I'll just let the question hang there for now. Will and like may not rate the same response. For now, back to the unexpected conclusion. It was all the paperwork. After asking for my birth date twice, I was asked my age not once but three times. I immediately knew that they had never heard of computers. Putting in my date of birth once would have quickly answered the other four questions. At any rate, my issue was entering my age three times. After the first time, I moved on, not thinking twice about how old I am. 
After entering my age the second time, I definitely focused on my age. But after the third time of putting down my age, I found myself actually thinking about how old I am and wondering when I got so old. That was the surprising conclusion. I am 80 years old. No kidding. I'm really that old. What image do you carry around for people 80 years old? I was shocked to learn that I have been carrying around the same image. Now I am forced to apply that image to me and it's all because of the appointment that didn't start with seeing the doctor, because of all the paperwork. The first thing I have learned is that my image of 80 year old people is wrong today and has always been wrong. It may or may not generally apply to 80 year old people, but it likely seldom specifically applies to anyone. It for sure doesn't apply to me. It seems likely that your image of 80 year old people is like mine. It probably doesn't work for many, if not most folks my age. We and our stereotype images simply have it wrong. If I don't fit my own image of what people my age are like, I wonder what other images I have that are equally wrong. Pick a classifier, any classifier. Pick any image that we think applies to a group of people, any group. The likelihood is that the image doesn't actually work for many if not most people in the group. For fun, consider your image of Democrats and the one for Republicans. Now contemplate the reality that whatever you think about either group is mostly wrong and doesn't work at all for many people in the group. If you don't want to focus on Democrats and Republicans, use your images of poor people, politicians, immigrants, billionaires, teenagers, or any other group. Just pick a group. Your image is mostly wrong, as is mine. Try it in the other direction. Pick a group where you currently fit. How do people not in your group perceive people in your group? How well do you personally fit that image? I suspect you get the point. If I had the inner wisdom that blind people are thought to have, I would have something at least wise, if not profound to close this out. I would have the inner sight that is supposed to compensate for the lack of outer sight. I would also have at least a sliver of musical talent and the enhanced ability to hear blind folks are supposed to have. You would be amazed by the day-to-day -day things I can do at least as well as your average 10-year-old, like going out and about by myself. Alas, I am both 80 and blind, so what can you expect? Whatever your image suggests, it is probably wrong, as is my image of you. To prove the point, we would only need to take time to get to know each other better. Now there is an idea really worth considering. You've probably heard the advice that tells us that we have to go along to get along. Much of the time, if it's not altogether true, it's at least convenient. Christopher Morley puts it like this, lots of times you have to pretend to join a parade in which you are not really interested in order to get where you're going. We have our individual goals and agenda, but much of the time, prioritizing our personal interests requires too much effort or may actually be counterproductive. Michael Koda is on point when he advises, the fastest way to succeed is to look as if you're playing by other people's rules, while quietly playing by your own. The truth here notwithstanding, there is a very real danger. On the one hand, 
we run the risk of becoming so accustomed to fitting in that we passively subordinate our goals and agenda to the will and wishes of others, or on the other hand, we are so intent on guarding our individuality that we become inappropriately rigid and inflexible. Finding the middle ground is difficult and staying on that middle ground is even more challenging. Bill Week tells us what is needed, I try not to break the rules, but merely to test their elasticity. Nonetheless, for most of us, the trip from knowing to doing is frequently less than smooth. At this point, I think most of us either give up and go along or begin and side with Bill Watterson's choice. From now on, I'll connect the dots my own way. As tempting as either alternative may be, experience tells me that the middle ground is still the place to be. How do you think this works as a helpful way of understanding the middle ground between giving in and digging in? I'm not in this world to live up to other people's expectations, nor do I feel that the world must live up to mine. Fritz Perl's perspective on the middle ground is one that I personally find helpful. I'm comfortable going along so long as I experience other people's expectations as compatible with or at least not incompatible with mine. However, if I experience those expectations as incompatible, passively going along is no longer an option for me. Saying this is easy but deciding to dig in and then doing it is not always easy and can be downright risky at times. Dr. Sunwolf knows the truth of it, sooner or later, you will need the courage to be disliked, or perhaps the courage to accept even more harsh consequences. There is a cost to giving in and going along, but perhaps an even higher cost to digging in. The dilemma is in understanding the cost and benefits of both choices and then living with your choice. Let's suppose that your organization is functioning in a way that is not leading to good or desired outcomes things are just not working out the way you want. What to do? This kind of dilemma can develop in families, in groups from teams to social gatherings, from corner shops to international businesses. Anytime people get together with a goal or outcome in mind, there is the potential for bad or at least less than optimal outcomes. So what is the cause and, more importantly, what is the fix? The underlying cause is usually some variety of the same issue. To understand how it happens, there are a few points that need our attention. Bullet things are always organized and functioning perfectly to get the outcomes we are getting. Were we to start from scratch, wanting the outcomes we are currently experiencing, we couldn't do better than to encourage everyone to keep up the good work, using only the resources and opportunities available to them today. Bullet the way people, roles, responsibilities and resources are currently arranged and distributed is optimal for the current outcomes. Bullet if we are satisfied with how things are working out, maintaining the status quo is definitely our best choice and needs to be our highest priority. But what if we are not satisfied? What if the status quo is not acceptable? The answer is easy, something has got to give, things have to change. Here's the problem. We look at the status quo, focus on how things are working today. Our assumption is that something or someone is not functioning correctly or well enough, assume that something is screwed up or that someone is screwing up. We just need to identify the malfunction and fix it. The good news is that this quick fix gets the job done now and then. Things get better and outcomes improve. But more often, the status quo persists and now and then, things get worse. Even so, Trying to fix things or encouraging or forcing a people change is usually worth a shot. 
it might just work. The bad news is that if the status quo is truly unacceptable, and if the outcomes we are getting are also unacceptable, simply trying to fix whatever we think is not functioning correctly won't work and is likely to make everything worse. This is particularly true when the problems have been persisting for quite a while. Something more is needed. There are a couple of realities that are easily overlooked. But most groups and organizations have evolved over time. They weren't just formed today to achieve today's goals. The reality is that they were formed some time ago to achieve the goals we had at that time. Since then, the group or organization has gotten less successful at achieving those goals or, more likely, the goals themselves have changed. But either way, our target is to achieve today's goals. The reality is that very few groups or organizations are configured optimally to deal with today's goals. Were we to start from scratch, we wouldn't configure our group or organization as it currently exists. It is also unlikely that we would use the exact same strategy that we are currently committed to using. Instead of starting with the status quo and asking how we can make it work for us, we would start with the current goal and ask what the best way is to achieve that goal. As counterintuitive as it may seem, what we discover is that we are approaching the issue from the wrong perspective. Our natural move is to try to figure out how to enable our current group or organization to achieve today's goal. We think that fixing it will get the job done. A better alternative is to start with a clear understanding of today's goal. With that in mind, we need to figure out the best way to achieve the goal, if we were to initiate the process from scratch. This step results in our knowing what the optimal strategy is and the best configuration to implement that strategy. With the optimal strategy and configuration as our roadmap, our effort shifts from fixing things to doing whatever is necessary to transform the current group or organization into the optimal configuration needed to achieve the current goal. But how do we go about facilitating the transformation? Bullet stop doing everything that is not working today, especially if those current activities are not needed in the transformed configuration. In an organization of most any size beyond a few people, there are things that have always been done and once had a valid purpose, but no longer serve any legitimate purpose. Just stop doing them. Bullet there are current activities that partially have some legitimate purpose and can't be abruptly stopped. Those should be temporarily continued, pending development of the transformed strategy to achieve today's goal. Bullet within the current group or organization, there are usually elements and people that can and will be part of implementing the new strategy. As quickly as possible, transfer them from the current strategy to the new strategy. Start building the transformed group or organization needed to implement the new strategy. Bullet it's rather like relocating an operation to a new facility. We bring along only those elements and people needed in the new facility. We make the transition gradually but progressively. To the extent possible, we retrain and support current people, making our best effort to enable them to join us in the new facility. Many but not all will successfully make the change. If we go back to the beginning, let's suppose that an organization is functioning in a way that is not leading to good or desired outcomes. Things are just not working out the way we want. What to do? We transform the current group or organization into a new entity optimally configured to do today's business today. We fundamentally dismantle the current group or organization, replacing it with an entity fully conforming to contemporary standards and values while consistently achieving today's goals. At the bottom line, we haven't fixed anything. We have replaced in place. 
The old group or organization is gone and the new entity is in place, doing what needs done today. Now you know so there you go.